Amen. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Let's go ahead and have a seat as you, uh, as we thank our worship team for leading us into his presence today. We are his children and we are blessed in that identity that we have in Christ. And uh, I'm excited to uh, continue this series. First, I want to let our our young people go. If you are in elementary age or younger, you can head over to these two doors back here and some amazing people will spend the rest of the service with you and uh, uh, lead you in some activities for them. For the rest of us, we're going to continue our series titled, What's True About You? What's true about you? As the song says, there is an identity that we have in Christ that is available to us because of his gift of grace and love and mercy that we can fully embrace. And we can say, I am who he says I am. And so we've been talking about this identity theft that took place. We started last week uh, in the first week of this series talking about identity theft and the identity theft that took place thousands of years ago in the Garden of Eden as they did not see, as Adam and Eve failed to see themselves, to see God and to see each other as God saw them. And we talked about this idea that the Son, who the Son sets free, is free indeed. That Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And he also identifies himself as the truth. And John tells us in his gospel that Jesus came full of grace and truth. And so we're looking at these truths of who God says that we are. And we're talking about power narratives. That you have narratives, you have things that have been said to you and about you that you have believed. And some of them have come from God's word. If you had godly family and godly uh, friends and and parents who, who brought you up, in the truths of God, but some of the things that the world has said to you or that other people have said to you, whether that was in school or at work or or in your family, that are not true. And if we misplace our identity in those things that are not true about us, they will lead us astray from God and what he has for us. So we are talking about some power narratives, and each week we'll be looking at a statement that is true about you with the idea that these narratives can cause us to sort of reformat our hard drive, reformat our self-talk, reformat the way we make decisions and the things that we do. Because when we come to see ourselves and to see God and to see each other the way God sees us and sees himself and sees all of us, then we'll do as he says. When we see as God sees, we'll do as God says. So just a quick review. Last week's bottom line was that you are a beloved child of God in whom Christ dwells and delights. And we broke that down phrase by phrase that the first phrase, you are a beloved of God. You are God's beloved, that he created you to love you. That is true for every person in this room. That is true for every person on the world that has ever been or will ever be. That God created every single human being in his image as the object of his love. The, re- the rest of that statement we looked at phrase by phrase assumes a relationship with Jesus Christ, assumes salvation in Jesus Christ, that there is a process by which we go from being God's beloved creation to being one of God's beloved children. And if we are children, then we are heirs. We are brothers and sisters, one with each other, and brothers and sisters with Christ. And that is good news. And the good news is that if you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you believe in him, put your faith in him, rely upon, cling to, and trust in him and him alone for salvation, then you become a child of God. You become a child of God in whom Christ dwells. We looked at Galatians 2.20, how Paul says, I am 
I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. It's Christ who lives in me in the life I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. That can become our core identity, that we are a child of God in whom Christ dwells and in whom Christ delights. Just like David could say in Psalm 18, he reached down and rescued me because he delighted in me. God has reached down and rescued you because he delights in you, because he sees infinite value and worth and potential in you. And he reached down, sent his son to come on a rescue mission from heaven to help you know what is true about you. So today's bottom line, it continues to assume that relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you're exploring, you wouldn't identify yourself as a Christian. You wouldn't identify yourself as one who's had a a saving, a salvation experience with Jesus Christ. This is a safe place to explore. And hopefully you will see something over the next few weeks that will cause you to desire that relationship with Jesus Christ, that relationship that he died for you to have with him. Today's bottom line is that you are safe and secure in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God, which is never in trouble. That's good news. That's good news in a world that, that doesn't always feel safe and secure, does it? That's good news in a world where fear has tremendous power. And this also goes all the way back to the garden. All the way back to the garden of Eden. Right after the fall, we're told that God was out looking for Adam and Eve. And he says, Adam, where are you? And Adam says, well, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And fear, and the power of fear goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, goes all the way back to the fall and all the way back to failure to see as God sees and a failure to do as he says. And so when we talk about fear, we have to remind ourselves that over and over and over in Scripture, God says, Do not fear. Do not be afraid. But do not be afraid of them. I know they look stronger. I know they look more powerful. I know the circumstances look terrible. But do not be afraid. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Over and over and over again, we're told in Scripture not to be afraid. So there is a difference because you might be saying, well, yeah, but what about, Pastor Mark, what about, you know, Solomon said that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and and we are commanded to fear God, so what's the rub? How does this work? Well, there is a huge difference between the fear of God, between reverence and respect for the authority and sovereignty of God and fear of man and what man can do to you or fear of evil and what evil will do in its opposition to God. We're on the winning team if we're in Christ. Have you ever T-voted a football game? And you like, don't tell me, you text all your friends, don't tell me who wins the game because you had some dance recital or something to go to and you want to watch the football game and pretend it didn't happen and your team's down 21 to 3 at halftime and somebody sends you a text and say, did you see that game? Can you believe that we came back and won in the second half? And you're like, ah, I can't believe you told me that. Well, we're on the winning team. I've read the last chapter, okay? It's going to be all right. We are safe and secure in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God. Whatever is happening in your life right now is only the halftime score. That's only half the story. If you're in Christ, it's all going to be made right. And we're going to look at all of that today. But there's this fear of God versus the fear of man. And there's also a really important thing we have to understand about the difference between believing in God and believing God. Because there's a big difference in believing that God exists, believing that that smart people have decided that he exists, and actually putting your faith in him, as the story Peter shared. He said, well, smart people think there's a God, so there must be a God. But there's a difference between believing in God and actually believing God, and believing what he has said, and believing what he says is true 
about you. So we can take him at his word. We can trust him with what he has entrusted to us, with this life and these relationships and this work that he has given us to do in his ministry of reconciliation. We can trust him. We can trust him. 2 Timothy 1.7 is one of the first passages that we'll look at as we talk about breaking the power of fear. And again, we're going to put the scriptures on the screen through this series because there's so many scriptures that we're looking at. And if you want to jot them down, there are notepads next to the Bible, but don't feel like you need to try to race through your Bible and get to every page uh, or every scripture. You could write them down on the notepad and look back at these over the week um, as you move through and kind of try to cement this into your soul. But 2 Timothy 1.7 says that God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of a sound mind or self-discipline. And, and, and there's a the replacement that takes place, that the world gives us a spirit of fear, that Satan wants us to be afraid. Satan wants us to fear and to be crippled by our fear. But God gives us, through his spirit, a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline or sound mind, as some translations say. And so as we root our true identity in Jesus Christ and in who God says that we are, we receive his power to overcome fear. We receive his perfect love, which casts out fear. First John tells us that God is love, and that perfect love casts out fear. And finally, we receive a sound mind, or, or we receive self-discipline. We can actually choose what we think about. We can choose what we meditate on, what we dwell upon. And we can dwell upon all the reasons that we have to be afraid, and all the worst-case scenarios, and all the things that could go wrong. Or we can dwell upon God, and upon his goodness, and upon his love, and his grace, and his mercy for us. Another familiar passage, probably one of the most familiar passages in the Old Testament, Psalm 23, verse 4, right in the middle of this famous, famous psalm, we hear these words from David, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that sounds pretty bad, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. His rod and his staff representing his provision, his guidance, his protection. All of these things are with us when we are in Christ. And when we say that I am a beloved child of God in whom Christ dwells and delights, and we put our faith in that, and we put our trust in that, and we put our hope in that, then he is with us. And he will not only lead us and guide us, but he will protect us. And he will provide for us. So I want to look at the first phrase and talk about the safety and the security that we enjoy as God's beloved children, as those in whom Christ dwells. And Psalm 91 says that he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. And I see a relationship that starts with that final word of verse 2, trust, that, that trust allows us to rest and that rest allows us to dwell, to reside in, to stay in God's protection. So when we trust in God, when we say he is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, we don't put our faith and our hope in man or in mankind or in ourselves and what we can secure for ourselves. We put our faith and our trust and our hope in God in who he says that we are in his kingdom, in his family. Then we are able to rest in the shadow of the Almighty and to dwell in the shelter of the Most High God. When we trust, we can rest. And as we rest, we will come to dwell in God and in who he says that we are. Deuteronomy thirty-three twelve. as we consider what it means to be safe and secure, 
says that the beloved of the Lord will rest secure in him, for he shields him all day long. And the one the Lord loves rests between his shoulders. Have you ever seen one of those pictures that sometimes you'll see with a newborn? Usually it's a first child because when you have several children around, you can never take this kind of photograph, I don't think. But it's a dad laying and there's a child laying between his shoulder blades, perfectly asleep. The way children can sleep anywhere, you know, a newborn infant can just sleep anywhere. That's the image that I have there in the second half of that verse. That, that he, the Lord, shields us all day long and the one the Lord loves rests between his shoulders. And that's the invitation to each and every one of us as we place our identity more firmly in Christ and who Christ says that we are, that we are the beloved of God and we can rest secure in him. And he will shield us all day long. Now, depending on what tradition you come from, you might be hearing this word security and and thinking about the idea of eternal security, which is this idea that nothing can snatch us from God's hand, that we are secure in God's hand. And unfortunately, if you take that line of thinking far enough, you end up with a dangerous teaching that says something like, well, sin I will, sin I must. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. It's all covered under the blood. And I'm just going to sin that grace may abound. I'm just going to sin because the more I sin, the more God's grace is shown in my life. And so I'm just not going to worry about all this holiness stuff. I'm not going to worry about doing anything that God has said I ought to do or ought not to do. I'm just going to go have it up. And Paul addresses this very, very clearly in several of his lessons. He says, no, let that never even be said, that we are to pursue holiness, and that if we understand what has been done for us, we understand where we reside in God's kingdom and in the family of God, then we'll have a desire to please God in everything that we do. And that we'll have a desire to dwell with God. And that sin always separates us from him. Sin always causes a separation between us and God. And we don't want anything to separate us from God. So we pursue holiness and we pursue righteousness. We dwell in his land. And that's one of my favorite uh, psalms or or phrases from the psalms. It's Psalm 37.3 where David says, Dwell, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Dwell with God and do good. Do good. Paul said in Ephesians 2.10 that you are God's masterpiece. You're created in the image of the perfect God and that he has created good works for you to do. And he longs that we will experience the joy and the satisfaction and the peace that comes from linking arms with him and being about his business and doing the things that he has ordained for us to do, the good things that God desires for us to do. At Psalm 37.3 in the New American Standard Bible says, Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Cultivate faithfulness. How many of you have a summer garden? Anybody? we got things growing. We've, we've, we've tried a summer garden. We've ended up with like four tomatoes that had 30 hours and probably $50 worth of material <laughs> invested in them. Uh, but here we got stuff growing. We're going to have some tomatoes. We're going to have some uh, squashes. We're going to have some watermelons. We're cultivating those things. We're, we're taking care of them. We planted them. We've fertilized them. We've watered them every day. We're cultivating those things. And I love that image of cultivating faithfulness. One of the sermons that I preached a while ago had the bottom line to doubt your doubts or your fears in this case and feed your faith. Feed your faith. What are the things that feed your faith? 
Because if we don't know who we are and we don't know whose we are and we don't know where we are, that we are in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God, which is never in trouble, we're going to let fear take us way off course. But if we doubt our doubts, if we, if we acknowledge, yeah, there's some doubt there, there's some uncertainty there, but we can feed our faith. We can feed our faith with a steady diet of God's word. We can water our soul and our spirit every day with God's word. We can be in fellowship with others. We can gather and worship him. We can grow in our relationship with him and do the things that cause that to happen. We can cultivate faithfulness and feed our faith. We can pull up the weeds. We can fertilize the soil. We can grow more and more faithful. And I want to say a final word about safety before we move on from this. And, and it's partly because we've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia with our kids, and, and this has just kind of emerged as a principle that we have to understand about life with God. Because sometimes we hear about people who move across the, the, the world, and they go into very unsafe places. And so you say, Pastor Mark, how can you say that, that, that you're safe and secure in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God? We'll, we'll get to that. But, but I want to say something about safety that that I think C.S. Lewis really nailed in the Chronicles of Narnia. If you've seen The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or read the books, there's a scene early on where they're first talking about Aslan, who represents Jesus, who represents the Lion of Judah um, in, this, in this children's story. And, uh, and the beavers are talking to the children because beavers talk in Narnia because all the animals talk in Narnia, so don't let that throw you off. But, but there's this conversation. I'm going to pick you up halfway through. Um, and Mr. Beaver says, Don't you know who the king of beasts is? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Well, that you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Oh, then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And it's that fact that he is the king, that in his majesty and in his sovereignty and in his power, he is in charge of the affairs of this world, that we can hold him in high regard, we can revere him, we can respect him, and it's his goodness. He's good. He is good. And in his goodness, we can trust that he will make all things right in the end. That in his love and his grace and his goodness, we find our safety and our security because of who he says that we are. So while it may not be safe to follow him, just as William Shedd said, a ship is, not, a ship is safe in harbor, but that is not what ships are for. I fear too many Christians have dropped their anchor in the harbor where it's safe and they have missed out on the adventure that God has for them, whether that's crossing over a line of risk or a line of fear into the land of faith and evangelizing a friend or a family member and sharing your testimony, sharing the word of God, inviting somebody to church, doing something that reaches out to somebody. It doesn't feel safe and we're worried what somebody might think of us so we don't ever do it. Just like a ship is safe in harbor, but that's not what ships are for. And if we recognize and we understand that we are safe and secure in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God, we'll realize that following God may not be strictly speaking safe, but you are. You are. God didn't say following him was safe. He said you're safe. You're safe. You put your faith and hope and trust in Christ, you are safe. And 
You're not just safe and secure. You're safe and secure somewhere. You're safe and secure in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God, which is never in trouble. And when we talk about the kingdom of God, this is a really big idea, really big deal. The idea the kingdom of God transcends our concept of an earthly kingdom. When I hear about a kingdom, I think about a guy on a throne and a political designation or some territory or piece of land. That's a kingdom. But God's kingdom is so much bigger than that. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word kingdom, the word we describe or translate as kingdom, has more to do with dominion and power and authority and rule and reign. These are the things that make up God's kingdom. And the best definition I've ever heard of God's kingdom is the place where God's rule is taking place. Wherever God's way is done, wherever God's will is done, that is the kingdom of God. And Jesus came to inaugurate a kingdom here on earth. And if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will see talk over and over and over again about the kingdom of God. The kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is here. And Jesus came to inaugurate a kingdom, and he is the king. And back in the Old Testament, they were talking about this. Daniel had a vision of this taking place. And he said he, Jesus, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. That's all capsulated in this word kingdom. All peoples, nations, and men in every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You are safe and secure in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God which is never in trouble. It has never been in trouble. It will never be in trouble. It wasn't in trouble when darkness settled over the earth as Jesus was up on the cross. It was never in trouble. It will never be in trouble. Read the pages of Scripture. Read Revelation and see that the Lamb overcomes, that God wins in the end. The kingdom is not in trouble. The kingdom is strong and it's unshakable. Another passage you might be a little bit more familiar with, we talk about it a lot at Christmas time, often with a sermon series focusing on a few of the key words that are used to describe God or describe Jesus in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. You've probably heard this one before. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those are all Those are all names of Jesus. Don't miss verse 7. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and forever. The kingdom of God is not in trouble. And you reside in in the kingdom of God, if you are in Christ. And if you reside in the kingdom of God because you are in Christ, then you are not in trouble. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. Why? Because God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The last verse we're going to look at today, Romans eight twenty eight. Maybe you've seen it on a plaque or you've seen it in a Christian bookstore. Or you've seen it Posted on social media, this really, really important verse that, that is how God is doing all of these things for us. That he, in his goodness and in his sovereignty, they combine in Romans 8.28 for a rock-solid promise that God will work all things together for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to to his purpose. And it doesn't say most things. It doesn't even say 99% of things. It says all things. And just like we talked about a couple weeks ago, 
being a Christ-centered family of Christ-centered families and how we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, all our soul, all our strength. That word all doesn't leave any asterisk for something to get left out. That God is working all things together because he is eternal. And what doesn't make sense now, if we will trust him, if we will place our hope and our trust in him and trust that he is going to work this together for good as well. He will work it all together. Because our perspective changes everything, doesn't it? Have you ever noticed this? Your perspective really matters because in the moment, even a small problem can be a really big problem. Like a red light or coming across a parade route on your way to some place that you're late and now there's a parade and now you're going to go around it or you're going to wait for it or something. And in the moment, that's a big issue. But if you put it in the perspective of the day, it's really not that big of an issue. Or you take it in the perspective of a week, it's no issue at all. You're not even going to be thinking about it. And if you could take a bigger issue, say a medical diagnosis that's really, really concerning and is going to require some really difficult decisions. And I've been in rooms when people have received those diagnoses, or I've been in rooms with people shortly after they've received those diagnoses. And there's two kinds of people. There's some that, that broaden the perspective, and they don't get consumed, and they don't become afraid. They say, I'm going to trust God with this. And I'm going to put it in the perspective of not even my lifetime, but in the perspective of eternity. This isn't a problem. This isn't a problem. I was in a room with somebody uh, several years ago, and he had just gotten really, really bad news. And he looked up and he smiled and he said, Pastor, I'm in a no-lose situation. Either they fix this and I get to stick around a little bit longer, or they don't. And I get to go be with Jesus. I've lived a long life. I've been out of hospitals for most of it. I'm in a no-lose situation. And uh, a few weeks later, it turned out that things hadn't gone very well. And uh, I went to visit him again. And he was surrounded by family. And he said, this has been one of the best weeks of my life. As he's literally dying. Because he took the eternal perspective. And he said, I'm surrounded by all these people that love me. I've lived a long, full life. And I know where I'm going. And I know whose I am. And that really helped me to see that Jesus offers a permanent solution to all of our temporary problems. And you might be wondering what this rope is doing up here on stage, but I want you to imagine for a minute that this rope is sort of like a timeline of your life, that every person in this room has a starting point, and it goes off, and you can see it kind of wind up and goes off stage. I want you to just pretend for a minute that it goes out the door, picks up 57th, and just starts to go west. As, I'm sorry, east. This is going east, right? East, as far as you can imagine. Because we're all eternal beings. Now, this black spot represents your life in the scope of eternity. And so tell me, how much sense does it make to get all focused on this little bit right here and think that this is all there is when we know that it goes forever, that every single person in this room is an eternal being, that you're going to spend eternity somewhere. And Jesus has offered a permanent solution to every temporary problem that we have. And so what we do in our finite thinking is, is we say, well, I'm going to go to school right here and I'm going to get a degree right here and I'm going to work really hard for this part right here so that I can really enjoy this last little bit right here. How much sense does that make when all of this still needs to be addressed? 
And so when we talk about being safe and secure in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God, we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about God graciously offering us a permanent solution to every temporary problem that we might have. And I'm not here to belittle your problems. I'm not here to belittle the things that have caused you anxiety or that have kept you up at night. My hope is to put them in perspective, to put them in perspective of eternity and the realization that Jesus has offered to each and every one of us a permanent solution that we can put our hope and our faith and our trust in him and realize that because we've done that, we are safe and secure in the strong and unshapeable kingdom of God, which is never in trouble. You no longer have to be a slave to fear. You are a child of God. You reside in his kingdom, and you can trust him. You can trust him. You can absolutely trust him. You can trust him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. You can trust him with your past and your present and your future. You can trust him with your fears and your shame and your regret. You can trust him with your heart. You can trust him with your relationships. You can trust him with your loved ones and your family members. You can trust him with your hopes and your dreams. You can trust him. He is trustworthy. And so as you respond in faith today, my hope is that the altars won't be empty this morning. My hope is that there will be some that will come to the altars and they will leave something that has held them in fear for far too long. That they will make an altar where they're seated and commit to the Lord something. Say, I, I want to believe. And every time I'm tempted to fear, I'm going to remind myself that I am safe and secure in the strong and unshakable kingdom of God, which is never in trouble. If you want someone to pray with you, you can go to one of the far altars. If you want to pray alone, you can come to the center altar. But my hope is that we will all respond in faith to God and that we will take a step closer to him and we will lay something at his feet today. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the good news that we are your beloved children, that we in Christ are safe and secure in your strong and unshakable kingdom and that your kingdom is never in trouble. Lord, I pray for those who are here today who have maybe never heard this good news and their eyes are being opened and their spirits are being awakened and and something's stirring inside of them. Lord, I pray that they will lean into that and that they will reach out and take hold of what you have offered, of the permanent solution that you have offered to every temporary problem that we can experience. Help us, Lord, to have a divine perspective. Teach us to number our days aright, that we would gain a heart of wisdom. Help us to see as you see and to do as you say. And Lord, if there is someone that we need to share this with, God, lay that upon our hearts right now. Someone that needs to know who they are, whose they are, where they are. It's in your name we pray. Amen.